You are our delight. There is no one greater than you. There is no one better than you. You spoke, and it all came to be. And we went the wrong way. Because you are full of grace and compassion and truth and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, you sent your Son, your Son, to die for us. So on the front end, we just say thank you. Thank you that we are the redeemed. Thank you that the wrath of God is not our biggest problem. We are free in Christ Jesus. Bless us now. Help me, please. Fill me with your spirit. Make us hungry for your good news. Because we need good news. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, maybe you've ever, maybe you've heard the phrase before, don't miss the tree for the forest, right? The idea that you can zoom in on something, and when you zoom in on it, you see some new stuff, but you miss the big picture. You've heard that before, right? Well, to try to help you understand this a little better, I made this printout. I wonder, and I'm not expecting anyone to get this, but I hope someone does. Does anyone have a clue what you're looking at? If you were to zoom out and look at it at its normal size, some of you might know what it is. It's a common thing, and very common. Yes? Not a pipe cleaner. Think smaller. Any guesses? A stick. It's not a stick. It's not a spring. That's. It's not a bug. Man, this audience participation is terrific. You don't remember? I thought I told you what it was. My wife does not know. It's not a carpet fuzz. It is. It is a ramen cheese noodle. It's not a ramen noodle. That actually is a pretty good guess. It is a light bulb filament. So it's made out of tungsten, and they have to do all this crazy stuff to make it ductile. Is that the word? So you can warp the metal and bend it and take, turn it into shape. So it's a coiled coil. And it has 1,100 of these tiny little coils. Which is amazing if you think about it. Because your filament's only this long, huh? And it's got over 1,000 coils in that coil. So why do I show this to you? It's to tell you what we're doing this morning. This morning we're going to look at our passage. We're going to look at the Exodus, alright? And we're going to see it for what it is. And then, <clears throat> then we're going to zoom in on it. And when you zoom in on something, you, you see things you hadn't have seen before. Like, you never knew that that's what tungsten filaments actually look like. You probably might not have even known that in your tungsten filament, there is coils within the coil. But when you zoom in, you find out some new stuff. But you also have to zoom out so you have proper perspective. Like, you got to zoom out of the leaf or the tree so you can see the whole forest, right? So... That's what we're going to do this morning. That's, that's our outline, so to speak. We're going to look at the story, then we're going to zoom in to one key passage, and that's really where we're going to look at a text. And then we're going to zoom out, and we're going to look at Exodus 1 through 15. So that's a lot to do in one sermon, a whole lot. So I hope you came ready to think hard. This is going to be glorious. May God help me. And our three sections, when we look at it, just as it is, we're going to see the Lord is king, okay? I'm going to start there. The Lord is king. And then we're going to zoom in, and when we zoom in, 
we'll see the Lord's salvation and judgment. That's what we're really going to zoom in on. And because we focus a lot on new creation and salvation at this church, today we're actually going to go the other way, and we're going to dive in deep to judgment and investigate what judgment is from the Lord. And then when we zoom out, we're going to look not at the Lord as king or the Lord's salvation and judgment. We're going to look at the Lord's messenger. Who is the Lord's messenger in this Exodus story? And if we zoom out far enough, we'll see how all of this relates to Jesus Christ. So we'll jump on in. Right now, we're just I got the tungsten filament right here, and you can barely see it. We haven't zoomed in and put it under the microscope yet. So here's, here's the Exodus story, one of the most exciting stories in the Bible. Hopefully, I can share it well. In Exodus 13, the people have just been set free from Egypt, right? But the problem is they were set free on a loan. Once they've left Egypt, Pharaoh has a change of heart yet again. He and his compadres say, what have we done? We let the slaves go. I think the idea is, now we have to work. (laughs) What are we thinking? This is terrible. Slaves were the backbone of our economy. How can we make it without them? (gasps) And then in verses 17 through 14, 9, they realize something. God is making Israel just go in circles out in the wilderness. They're just kind of wandering around, and they look aimless, and God does this on purpose. This is so that the Egyptians will think they're lost, and the Egyptians will go and try to get them. My daughter this morning said, kill them? I said, I don't think they want to kill them. I think they want to bring them back and enslave them again. But there might be a few casualties along the way. So, in Exodus 13, 17 through 14, 9, Israel gets, so to speak, lost. And Pharaoh and his armies of 600 chariots go out and say, we're going to get you back. We, we, we don't know what we were thinking, but we need you. So come back to Egypt. So, and then in 14, chapter, chapter 14, 10 through 31, you see the salvation of God and the judgment on the Egyptians, right? This is an amazing story. You know the story, I would imagine. It's an incredible story. The Israelites are up against a body of water. Most conservatives say the sea, the Red Sea, right? In Hebrew, it's literally the Sea of Reeds. So whatever the Sea of Reeds was, probably the Red Sea, that's, that's where they are. So wherever they are, they're stuck, right? Because there's a giant sea thing on the other side, and they look, and lo and behold, chariots are coming to destroy them and enslave them. I mean, how terrifying would this be? If this happened to you, you would be afraid. That's probably what you would be. And that's exactly what happened to these people. You see that in verse 10. They cry out in fear. And I'm just telling you the story real quick. And then we're going to dive in real deep and look at a section later on. It's terrifying. You can probably see the dust clouds rising up as the chariots are coming. You can probably hear the horses neighing. You might hear the armies yelling. This is scary stuff. And then in verse 13, Moses says, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. You need only be silent. In other words, just sit back and watch the show. It's like a movie. What you see can't actually hurt you. Just enjoy it. God will do it. So this is a huge call for faith, right? Huge call for faith. And then, right when the Egyptians are about to get them, 
The pillar that has led them out cuts back around and stands in between the Egyptians and the Israelites, which is amazing because it's nighttime. We read that, and which means that this is a pillar of fire at night. Can you imagine this gigantic blazing pillar of fire going back and forth. If anyone tries to make it to the Israelites, they're going to get caught up in a fiery tornado. So don't try it, right? Can you imagine watching this? I mean, this would be incredible, just incredible. So, okay, well, they can't get to us, right? That's what the Israelites are probably thinking, but we still can't go anywhere. So what are we going to do? Well... God instructs Moses. He says, Moses, stretch your staff out over this body of water, over the Red Sea. He stretches it out. And a strong east wind comes and splits the waters in two. So there's a wall of water here and a wall of water here and dry land in the middle. And they walk across it at nighttime. Amazing. You imagine you're like walking across the water and there's like a tuna fish right there looking at you or whatever, you know? It's really something. And so they walk, they walk across it, and as they're getting on the other side, the sun is just rising, just rising up when they get to the other side. And the Egyptians, for whatever reason at that point, can come and get them. So I suppose once they got to the other side, the pillar that led them went all the way back around and is now leading them out, I guess. No longer needed the protection of the pillar of fire. So the Egyptians are like, all right, let's go get them. Now's our chance. Got to go get our slaves back. We didn't know what we were thinking, but we'll fix our wrongs now. <coughs> they get into the body of the water. That's, they're on the dry land, but they're in the midst of the sea, right? And God messes up their chariots somehow, and they get stuck. It's kind of hard to know exactly what's going on there in the text. And then God says, Moses, staff out, water's on, enemies defeated. They're washed up on the shore, and the people... Are saved. Then you get chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. What do they do in response to this salvation? They do what anybody would do. They celebrate. We're not dead. We're not slaves. We just walked through a body of water on dry land. God is awesome. God is awesome. And that's exactly what you see in chapter 15, verse 18. That's how they end the song. So look at chapter 15, verse 18. What is the point of this song? They tell you in chapter 15, verse 18. So you have a Bible, eyes there. The Lord will reign, that means act as king, forever and ever. That's what sums this whole thing up. The Lord is king. King over whom? The gods of Egypt. He has conquered the gods of Egypt thoroughly, completely, with an exclamation point. If you remember Joel's sermon about the plagues, right? They had the frog god, and they had the sun god, and even Pharaoh was god. And his son was the son of god. And Yahweh, our god, has conquered them all, and they are defeated, and that is why they say Yahweh is king. To see this, look at Exodus 18. 8 through 11, real quick. Exodus 18, 8 through 11. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake. Verse 9. 
Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things that Yahweh had done for Israel. Verse 10, he said, Praise be to the Lord who has rescued you out of the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 11, Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all the gods, for he did this to those who treated Israel arrogantly. You see what's happened here? You've got this outsider, and this is his perspective. You serious? That's what Yahweh did to Egypt? That's what Yahweh did to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's son and the whole army? Wow. He's the greatest God there is. And that's the point. That's the point of what we're looking at here. So we're just looking at the filament. We haven't zoomed in. We haven't zoomed out. We're just looking at the filament. And what do we see? That our God is the greatest of all gods. Like Carl just shared during his little mini-sermon. It cracks me up. Carl always says he can't preach, but every time he gets up here, he gives this little mini-sermon, and they're always pretty good. So I don't know why he says he can't preach. So Dagon, right, Carl just shared. He falls down before the Ark of the Covenant, and his head gets chopped off because of the collision. What's the point? Compared to our God, all gods bow down. And there are other so-called gods out there. There are demonic forces. There are spiritual powers. Just go ask somebody in the occult. This stuff's real. It's really real, all right? And that's our response to this. With the growing tide, rising tide of the occult, dark arts, magic. I mean, for goodness sake, I remember last year, the TV station, the news station out of Albany, ran a special on a witch coven in, uh, I think it was Saratoga Springs. It might have been in Albany. They ran a special on it, talking about how these witches are just in harmony with the world, and they're not freaky, and they're opening up themselves to the public to try to be public good, and don't let the magic, mystical, dark arts scare you. They love you, and they want to treat you well. This was on the nightly news, like back in like June or something like that. I remember watching this, and I was like, what? Seriously? That's how mainstream this is? It's like, oh, well, there's a car accident, blocked up the interstate. Oh, here's some witches. Like, so what do we do with this? Here's what we do. We say our God is better. That's what we say. Our God settled it once and for all at the Red Sea. He showed that there's no one equal to his power. He is the one with all might and strength. Come at us, demons. Yes, we respect you, but we do not fear you. Our God is stronger. I remember a story my youth minister told me when I was growing up. He was at his high school, and there was this really, really dark, occultish girl, and she was a Satanist. Like, what are you? I'm Lutheran. What are you? I'm Satanist. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> nice to meet you. And she was always saying that she's going to put hexes on them and things like that. And he didn't know what to do. He was in high school at the time. I mean, if you're in high school and someone walks up to you and they're like, I'm a Satanist, I'm putting hexes on you, what would you do? <laughs> he's like, I don't know what to do. So he's thinking about it. And finally, this girl walks by him at lunch. And she says something to him. She gives him this mean look or something. I don't remember the story exactly. She gives him this look. And it's like, you know and I know that like, I'm, I'm hating you right now. And he stands up and he says... My God defeated your God 2,000 years ago when he raised Jesus from the dead. And there's nothing you can do to change that. And that hasn't changed today. That's the New Testament version of what we just saw right here. All right? 
Yes, the darkness will rise, okay? But the light is stronger. The Lord Jesus Christ is with you. He is with you. So, that's my, that's my look there, just at the story. All right, so we've got the story. And now that we know what we're looking at, we can zoom in on it. That's why you had no idea what you were looking at when you looked at that little tungsten filament. You didn't know what it was to begin with, right? You've got to know what it is to start with. And then you can zoom in, and you can see it real close. So that's what we're going to do. And we're going to zoom in and see what we see. Let's zoom in at Exodus 14, 21 through 31. Exodus 14, 21, I'm sorry, 19 through 31. And I'll read this passage. And as I read Exodus 14, 19 through 31, I want you to be listening for anything that reminds you of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, first book of the Bible, first chapter of the first book of the Bible. All right? So I'll read it through. This is God's salvation on Israel and judgment on Egypt. All right? So listen carefully. Verse 19. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other. Your translation might not have that. I think that's the best translation. That's the NIV. I think they nail it here. Throughout the night, the cloud, the the one cloud brought darkness to one side, that's Egypt, and light to the other side, that's Israel. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and that night the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire. You see that? He looked down from the pillar of fire at, and the cloud at the Egyptian army, and he threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And at daybreak, that's interesting, at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. So this is a sunrise salvation. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water slowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground. With a wall of water on their right and on their left, that the Lord, the God... That that day, sorry, verse 30, that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they trusted in him and in Moses, his servant. Very interesting. There's three things I want us to look at. But before we do, first we'll consider 
the salvation of God. And we won't spend much time on here, like I said. We talk about salvation all the time. This time we're actually going to do things differently, and we're going to focus on the judgment. But first thing, notice that there's tons of Genesis language in this story. I wonder if you caught any of it. I'm not going to ask you to say it out loud, but if you think you notice some of the Genesis chapter 1 language, raise your hand. If you think you notice, okay, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, yeah, 6, there's, there's Genesis stuff going on here. So think about this. There's dark on the Egyptians and light on the Israelites, and this is happening at nighttime. So in the midst of the darkness, light is breaking in and cutting it in half. You've got darkness over here, light over here. It's like how God split the night in two, and now there is day, and now there is night. Also, this one's really hard to pick up on, but did you hear about the, that strong east wind that's dividing the waters? You, you remember that? So this is a bit more technical, but in Hebrew, the word for wind is ruach. You've got to make sure you get some spit in there. Ruach. And the same word for spirit is ruach. It's the same word. So I wonder if that helps you. Think about Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And what did God do when the Spirit, the ruach, was going over the water? He divided the waters and brought up dry land. Same thing. The Ruach is going over the waters. And now it splits the waters in two and dry land comes up. And of course, this is all happening at daybreak. At morning, this is happening. In Genesis 1.5, there was evening and there was morning on day one. Like, that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff. What's the point of that? Here's the point. It's like Genesis 1, but again, it's Genesis 1. It's creation all over again. It's a new creation. Isn't that interesting? It's where we get our name of our church from. It's where we get it from, which is pretty cool to me. So here's the question. Why would God present a group of Israelites running away safely as the world being made again? Like, what is the connection there? It doesn't seem to have anything to do with each other. The Israelites are free. It's like the world is being made new again. What, what is that? Here's the answer. The Bible looks forward to a day when God will actually make this world again. Everything will be fixed. On that day, salvation to some, judgment to others. That's what's going on here. This is like that day. It's like that future day when some will be judged and some will be saved. That's what this day is like. It's looking forward to your judgment day. That's what this story is about. This is like a new creation. And how does God start the new creation? And how does he start his new world? By getting rid of those who shouldn't be there and saving those who should be there. This came up in conversation with me. I wasn't planning on sharing this, but it's just so neat. 
So on Monday no, or Tuesday, I'm doing Algebra 1 with a student, right? And this student can't always focus very well. I'm sure you probably love my student stories because they are wild. <laughs> um, I'm trying to teach this kid the quadratic formula, okay? It's not the easiest thing. And he looks at me, he goes, oh, I saw a news story. Like, <laughs> x equals negative b plus or minus the square root, and he's just not having anything of it, you know? And he says, scientists say the sun's going to blow up in 500 million years. That's soon. I thought they said three to four billion. Must be getting closer. And he, he went, he's not, he's not the strongest at math. That's why he needs help with me. And he actually sat down and thought long and hard about if 500 million years would be in his lifetime or not. Because he got a little spooked. He went. But he understood that this idea of the universe blowing up would be the end of him. He caught that. Like decreation equals I'm dead. And you know what he told me? He said, we need a new sun. Like, if we could just get a new sun, all our problems would go away. I was like, brilliant, brilliant. And I didn't proselytize to him. I didn't tell him to believe in Jesus, but he knows I'm a Christian, and I know he's an atheist. And I said, yeah, for atheists, that's a problem. Because no matter what you do in this world, it doesn't matter, because at the end of the world, in the time, the sun becomes a red giant, it blows up, and everything's gone. So what? But Christians actually believe that God will make a new sun one day. He went, really? He said, Christians believe that God will make all things new. All things new. He's like, wow. He didn't say these words, but the idea is, wow, all things new would mean I'm saved. That's what's going on in this passage. All things new mean if you're in that newness, you're saved. Isn't that cool? I think that's so cool. But we are focusing on the judgment here. Instead of light, instead of dry land, the Egyptians had the opposite, didn't they? They had darkness. They were swamped with waters. They drowned. They are being, like, decreated. They're being destroyed. And not only is their destruction like Genesis chapter 1, I wonder if you notice... Their destruction is also like Noah's flood. Can anyone imagine or figure out how is this destruction like Noah's flood? Well, they're saved through the waters, right? Noah was saved through water. The Israelites are saved through water. And who remembers where Noah's ark landed? It landed on a Mount Ararat, but Mount Ararat had what type of land? Dry land, it says that, as opposed to soggy land, wants you to know it's dry land. So you have waters destroy everybody, but some people find salvation by way of dry land. Am I talking about Exodus or am I talking about Noah? It's the same thing, isn't it? So there's another story it's like. It's like Genesis 1 with all that darkness and water stuff. I almost said swamp because I'm from Louisiana and dark waters in Louisiana is swamp. But it's like darkness and waters. It's like Noah's flood. And I won't have time to go through all this, but it's like Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah? Just raise your hand if you remember what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
wonder who remembers. A lot of people do. He rained water down on Noah's flood, and then he rained fire down on those wicked cities. So it's a strange thing to rain fire. What does that even mean? Like, rain is wet. Fire doesn't like wetness. That's a mixed metaphor, you know. He rained, he rained water, and then he rained fire. And I'd have you know that before he rained fire down, he sent destroying angels, just like Joel preached. In the Passover, God sent destroying angels. And the fire came down on Sodom and Gomorrah at daybreak. It says that. Exodus, I'm sorry, Genesis 19.15. As the sun was coming up, the fire came down. And you remember that weird phrase in Exodus? It said God looked down from the pillar to see the judgment on it, to see the judgment on um, Egypt. He looked down from the pillar and judged Egypt. Well, that's very similar to what God did with Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 18:16, God looked down on Sodom and Gomorrah. I won't give you more examples. Here's the point. The Exodus is like dropping an atomic bomb. It's the ultimate cataclysmic destruction. It's like Genesis 1 gone bad for the Egyptians. It's like Noah's flood is landing on the Egyptians. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah for them. You put all the bad stuff together in one bucket and you pour it out and you get the Exodus account. What this is, is a picture of hell. It's a picture of hell, and that's what we're going to talk about now. What is hell when you read the New Testament? It is a place of darkness, and it is a lake of burning fire. What was the exodus? It was darkness on the Egyptians, and they got swallowed up in the lake. Lake and sea are the same words in Greek and Hebrew. It got swallowed up in the lake, and it's compared to Sodom and Gomorrah, which was fire. These are pictures. These are pictures of how bad hell will be. And I want us to actually meditate on this a little bit. I just tell you, you don't want to go to hell. You don't. I hear students say things like, well, this world is hell. I wish. I wish. Because you have no category for how bad this is going to be. It is compared to darkness. Okay, what's the longest you've ever been in pitch darkness? Multiply that times a trillion. And you haven't reached one second of hell, right? That's not to say hell is dark. It's going to feel dark. Whatever darkness is, hell's worse, okay? And think about this one. Uh, a guy in the village right over here, off, right, right by Irving Avenue, he told me about half a year ago, he said, There's two, two worst ways to die are drowning and burning. I said, no, it's, that's not the worst, two worst ways. If you could combine them somehow, that would be the worst. That would be the worst. And that is what hell is. It is a lake of fire. Imagine you are on fire right now. And you have stopped and dropped and rolled, and it has been one minute, and you are still burning. You are screaming, I'm sure, right? And your rolling won't put it out. And then after five minutes, the extinguishers are here, and they have sprayed, and they are emptied out, and you are still on fire. Okay? Now multiply that out forever. 
That's the picture. And we haven't even got to the drowning yet. Okay? That is hell. I won't explain to you why that is just for God to do. I've explained that in other sermons. I'll explain it again. But right now, I just want that to land on you. That is the biblical picture of hell. You burn forever. You drown forever. It's in darkness. And there's other descriptions too. But they all come from this Exodus passage. Because it is a picture of everlasting judgment on those who do not think Yahweh is king. If you reject the kingship of the Bible, this is your fate. So the question is, how do you avoid that? (laughs) Who signs up for that? How do you avoid that? The answer, we have to zoom out to take that answer. Okay? So to zoom out, we're going to look at the Lord's messenger. Exodus 1 through 15, 21. We've seen that the Lord is king. He is king over all gods. He is the one that will win. And if you're on his side, you're good to go. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) And we've seen that the Lord will bring judgment and salvation when he makes the world new again, which we wait for that when Jesus comes back. And we will now see, how do you know which side you're on? Everlasting judgment or everlasting salvation? The answer is, do you listen to the Lord's messenger? The Lord's messenger. So, because we're moving on out of the Exodus story, I want to try to sum it up. What have we been preaching on for the last month or two? The Exodus, right? So here's my quick summary. I wonder, how would you summarize Exodus 1 through 15? What parts would you break it up into? Here's my quick summary. And I I want you to listen to this, because if you don't review, you forget. (laughs) Here's my review. There's trouble, slavery. So God sends Moses, who comes, to set them free. And he comes with, starts with an S, ends with an Eins. Signs, anybody? He comes with signs, right? To show that he's the real deal. And then he sets the people free through Passover, which leads to a new creation. And once Israel got to the other side of the sea, Exodus 14.31 said, they believed in the Lord and they believed in Moses. So my summary would be trouble, sending the messenger who does signs, who saves people through Passover, who brings a new creation that you should believe in. That's my summary. Now, we zoom out far enough. And I've heard that story before. You know how some stories get told and told and told and retold? Like, this is my wife's story, and now I realize how common it is. You meet somebody, my wife and me, this is our story. You meet somebody, you're like, oh, how did you meet? It's like, oh, we dated for about half a year, and then they dumped me, and we got back together, it all worked out, because we're married now. Like, I've heard this story over and over and over again. You just take the people out, and you switch. Same story, different people, right? You can do that with this story. I won't say who dumped two between Angela and me. But it all worked out in the end, right? <laughs> There's no judgment. Um, you, same story. You just switch the characters out. 
So how about this one? Let's see. If you've read the book of John, listen carefully. And if you haven't, you need to listen even more carefully. (laughs) There's trouble. People are enslaved to sin, right? So God sends Jesus. What a great idea. And Jesus comes doing signs. The book of John does not call them miracles. It calls them signs. Signs like healing a paralytic. Or signs like feeding 5,000 people with just a sack lunch from a little boy. These are signs. And then Jesus, after doing all these signs, saves his people on Passover. John 19.14 Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour he, that's Pilate, said to the Jews, Behold your king. On Passover day, Jesus is nailed to the cross because he's your Passover lamb. He's the one who dies so you can go free. And then Jesus is raised from the dead. Hallelujah, right? And when he's raised from the dead in the Gospel of John, he's, not, he's, he's, raised, he's raised in a garden. Which is just like the opposite of when everything went to put. Adam ruined it in a garden. Jesus is raised in a garden. God breathed the breath of life into Adam in the garden. Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on his disciples in John chapter 20. It's a new genesis. It's a new creation. And then how does the gospel of John end? John 20, verse 30 and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may... Believe, believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Do you see it? Do you see? It's the same story. We just swatched, we just swatched, we just swapped and switched. We swatched the characters out. That's what we did. We got trouble. So there's a messenger who comes bearing, doing signs, and he saves them with the Passover to bring about a new beginning, a fresh start of salvation, and you should believe in him. And you've got Jesus who comes doing signs, and he dies as your Passover lamb, so you aren't judged for your wrongdoings, and he's judged for you. He's like a filthy Egyptian worshiping these false gods. 2,000, 3,000 years ago, he gets judged for you. And he brings about a new beginning of salvation through his resurrection. So believe in him. Believe in him. What's the point? The point is that this story about Moses is not ultimately about Moses, is it? It's looking forward to someone else. It's looking forward to my Savior. And yours, if you trust in him. So, how do you know if you're going to be on the side of judgment or salvation? Do you believe in Moses? Or, better yet, do you believe in the new Moses? Do you believe in Jesus? Members of New Creation Church, and visitors who are trusting in Jesus Christ, I have good news for you. Shocking as it sounds, the day that you die will be the best day of your life. Isn't that unbelievable? I had a a resident back in college. I was an RA. And he sat down on my couch. He knew I was a Christian. He goes, I'm just terrified of the end. 
I just don't know what's going to happen at the end. Like, what if I go to hell? Christian, you don't have to worry about it. You don't worry about that. Stand back and watch the salvation of your God. Do not fear. Just be silent. Watch him do it. Watch him do it. You will die and you will be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ so long as you simply trust in him. So what do you do with that news? You do what Israel did. You praise God. You say, praise God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. You sing his praises for all of eternity because he has rescued you by the blood of his son. Just like we read in Acts chapter 20 today, that God shed his blood to save his church. It's an incredible verse. So, Christians, the Bible's God is our God. And there is no one greater than him. We submit to him, and by submitting to him, we do it by listening to his messenger, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you listen to the Lord Jesus Christ, you, it sounds complicated, this sermon. It's so basic. Who's God? Our God is the one true God. Who's his messenger? Jesus. What do you do with him? You listen to him. You do what he says, because if you don't do what he says, you're going to wind up more like the Egyptians and less like the Israelites, right? This is our story. This is our future. And so we say, praise God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you that by the blood of Christ, I need not fear the judgment day. My wrath has been borne by your Son. His love for me is so great, and I trust in him. I believe in him. He is my Savior. He is our Savior. He is like Moses, but better. He's like a Passover lamb, but better. And he is changing this world, one person at a time, making it new. Our Father in heaven, we pray, sink this into our hearts. We want to believe in your Son more and more. We want to believe in your Son enough to open our mouths and share the good news. We want to believe in your Son enough to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So work this in us by your Spirit, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.